0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Delighted again to
1: welcome Professor Colin Milburn, who's uh, at UC Davis, for our conversation today. He's a very interdisciplinary scholar. He's actually active in three different departments at Davis But his work revolves, uh, you tell me if this is wrong, but uh, largely around topics including science and technology, inside literature and film, and also the gothic horror genre um, and kind of projections of technology into the future. So in our conversation tonight, um, I'm going to try to angle us towards four kind of central topics. Uh, First is Bride in relation to Shelley's novel and the original film. Uh, The second is the relationship between horror and camp. Obviously, the film involves a lot of comedy and camp to it, uh, which I want us to delve into. Third is kind of questions of science and technology raised by Bride, and then the last one is the queer subtext of Whale's film, which I think we also all enjoy. Excellent. Great.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, one quick note just before we start. Uh, in, in the novel that Shelley wrote, the main character's name is Victor Frankenstein. In the movie we just watched, his name is Henry Frankenstein. It's the same guy. I'm sure at some point I'll call him Victor, and at some point I'll call him Henry. Just know that I'm talking about the same character, and I apologize in advance for that slip-up, but... Um, I don't know exactly why they decided to do that with the film, but uh, that, is, that is the case.
2: Even more confusingly, in the novel, his best friend is called Henry. Yeah, that's right, yeah. who's not a character <laughs> at all in the film. So.
1: so let's start with a little bit with Shelley's novel. Shelley's novel, obviously an early paradigm of the science fiction genre, inspired lots of writers and artists, but Wales' films are very far from slavish imitations, right? They have their own unique creations, iconic visual style, acting archetypes, So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what you see as the legacy of Wales to Frankenstein films um, apart from Shelley's novel? Like, What did they add to this story?
2: Mm. Well, I think one clear distinction of these films is the interpretation of the monster itself, which is similar but strikingly different from the way it's represented in Shelley's novel. On the one hand, in Shelley's novel, the monster, it's not clear that it's built from spare body parts. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein is clearly digging in graves and is um, doing something with dead bodies, but it's not clear that he's using a spare arm here, a spare brain there, a chest cavity um, from one and so forth. He's getting some kind of materials, gathering them from uh, from the dead, whereas the monster in uh, the whale films is clearly a composite being. It's pieced together from different bodies, and it's sutured together in a very rough way. Shelley's monster is described as almost beautiful, but there's something hideous about it. Its skin is too tight, but Victor has this conflicted relationship to it, both find it attractive and repulsive. The Karloff version is clearly a hybrid mishmash. It doesn't seem to uh, mimic the human form quite as well as Shelley's does. But I think in that regard, The whale films are drawing an interpretation of Shelley's representation of the monster that helps us to see certain themes in Shelley's novel that may not have been as evident without the the Karloff representation. Because in seeing the monster as this composite hybrid, we see the monsters as a multitude. It's lots of individuals together in one body. And In that sense, when we look back at Shelley's novel and we see the monster as a composite being that somehow a multitude that's resisting authoritarian power, resisting the abusive uh, power of its creator, it adds a sense of kind of revolutionary political uh, uh, dimension that uh, is not otherwise obvious in Shelley's novel. So I think the whale films help us see that. And another aspect about the representation of the monster in the whale films is it's a It's clearly electrical and mechanical nature. The the Mary Shelley monster is very much a biological creature. It's it's, uh, created through chemical processes. In the 1831 revision of... uh, So the first uh, edition of Shelley's Frankenstein was 1818. She revised it a bit for the 1831 edition. And there is a suggestion in the 1831 edition that has something to do with Galvanism, but it's a single sentence. That gets pulled out and and obviously run with tremendously in the the two Frankenstein uh, whale, the whale's two Frankenstein pictures, where electricity is clearly a tremendously important thing. Some kind of physical electromagnetic radiation beyond the ultraviolet, as is said in the first Frankenstein picture, x-rays, perhaps something beyond the ultraviolet. So it's very much a a physics phenomenon. The electric, uh, nodes sticking out of the, right, right. the monster's neck. So we get a sense of biology or uh, the production of life after death as an engineering problem, sure. a mechanical um, task that needs engineers as much as it needs natural philosophers to deal with. And I think right. that's a, a new contribution that really is yeah. attentive to a 20th century context in which these questions are emerging in the biological sciences. Exactly, yeah, the same It
1: becomes way. a science problem yeah. to sort of figure out. And even in this film, Pretoria sort of has figured out one aspect of it, but not another aspect, right? And the two of them need to kind of unite together in order to make this work. It, it, yeah. It's more of a science problem than just, you know, in the, in the novel, it's more about religion uh, a bit and also about this idea of kind of stealing from God, the, the ingredients of life. So I want to stick actually with uh, your idea about um, the composite nature kind of of the the monster, this film definitely feels like a composite film too, right? Uh, Something that's kind of mashed together many, many different uh, genres. It jumps between kind of gothic horror and this campy, zany comedy just in a flash. Uh, Pretorius's creatures are treated as something of a uh, farcical failure, right? Uh, we We get to kind of laugh at them. There are moments in the film where it seems like science has this horrific potential, but also has this kind of like cutesy, harmless potential at the same time. Um, So what do you see as like
2: added by jumping back and forth between these different sort of styles? hmm. A number of things. I think you're absolutely right that it kind of performs or itself figures its own hybrid nature. It's a mishmash of genres like the monsters a mishmash of bodies. But it has a number of effects that the radical shifts or juxtapositions of tone. Um, in one regard there's a very practical um, aspect to it and so far as the first the 1931 Frankenstein film which was played much more straight up seriously yeah. um, it did run into some censorship problems local censors that cut to one scene of violence and um, one's line of potentially blasphemous dialogue so by Doing, uh, adding extra humor it potentially protects the film to have to explore some of its more disturbing content in Bride while also saying you know, we can also not have to take this too seriously we can laugh at it as well so it, it, it's a protective function but then by doing that it also heightens the horror when we're caught off guard in the sure. moments where we're uh, just tempted to laugh for example even at the very beginning of the film where the um, the village woman is lifting the monster out of the burning uh, mill and then suddenly we're laughing at this and then she's thrown to her death. Uh, We're shocked by that because we have just been caught off guard by the humor. So I think that's another function. And then also the humor makes us think about being attentive to jokes and puns that occur throughout. And there are many, as I heard everybody laughing when you hear certain puns are very obvious, but it then makes us open to double meanings, the mm. role of metaphor and symbolism. Mm. Um, so asking us to think about the serious and the, um, the slapsticky together. Yeah, yeah opens I like that. Up interpretive range.
1: I also think, you know, that opening moment where he does pull her down, you know, we're tempted at different moments in the story to really, really identify with the monster and wish great things for him. And there are still moments where you're reminded that he is kind of uh, capable of of kind of senseless violence. I mean, there's nothing that that old lady really did to him other than (laughs) offering him a hand to pull up, right? Um, so
2: well, he may remember her from the first movie. Right. However, in yes. which uh, yes, through actions not entirely of his own uh, fault, he ends up murdering her daughter, Murderer, and then he yeah. ends up the, the entire village uh, turns Murderer. against him and persecutes him because the parents are, of course, very upset about their yeah. daughter dying. So yeah. there's a backstory to his. There violence. is a backstory. <laughs> there is a backstory. <laughs>
1: Um, so let's talk a little bit more about aggression and violence. So in the original film, part of that is kind of explained away by the fact that uh, he is given a brain that is a brain of a criminal, right? There's a sense of uh, a corruptness to the uh, bodily parts that he's actually functioning with, kind of an, an innate evil there. In this film, obviously, the corrupt brain is kind of alighted. We get flashbacks at the beginning. None of that really kind of mentions... You see him them cut down the guy from the gallows, but it's not really said that this is a, you know evil brain. Uh, Here we see the creature make tender connections, enjoys art, learns to speak. How does the uh, kind of potential for him to be humanized complicate our feelings towards him? Uh, And, you know, what does Frankenstein suggest, or what does the bride of Frankenstein suggest Mm -hmm.
2: about what it means to be human? Mm -hmm. So in, in Shelley's novel, it deals with these same themes. The monster is very clearly. The victim of circumstance, it turns murderous, as it says in its own account, I was born good, misery turned me into a fiend. The Victor Frankenstein's neglect and um, abandonment of his creation leads to its, the, the series of uh, devastating things that happen to the monster that clearly are responsible for turning murderous. In the first whale film, the procurement of the brain, so Fritz, the laboratory assistant, goes to get a good brain from the, um, the uh, anatomy lecture hall, accidentally drops it, needs to get a quick brain that finds the abnormal brain, the evidence of the abnormal brain, which turns out to be a murderer's brain. And then, of course, that is, as you're suggesting suggested in the film as being the cause of the monster's murderousness, but significantly the first film is actually pretty clear that we can't simply attribute nature or the the identity of the murderer brain as the sole cause for the monster's monstrousness. After all, like in Shelley's novel, the monster in the first Frankenstein film is abused by Fritz the assistant, uh, is neglected by Frankenstein, his creator. So there is a kind of sense of righteous violence even in the first film, such that we can never really decide, is it nature or is it nurture that produced the monster's violence? And I think that's a question that is not in the original Shelley Novel, which is very clear, it's nurture, like it, it's, right. it's entirely clear. The whales, whale films open up this um, irresolvable question internal to themselves of whether nature or nurture is responsible or some kind of combination of them. And that's what it contributes to your yeah. question of what does it mean to be human. It's participating in, a, again, a 20th century debate about these questions that are being activated increasingly in the biological sciences and the rise of genetics at the time and so forth, where many of these same questions are being asked about the relative roles of development versus um, genetic yeah. Um, origin. So, yeah.
1: Well, and then maybe that answers kind of my next question, too, which, as you alluded to in the original novel, um, Victor is really the one kind of to blame for the condition of the monster, right? Uh, and he ends up, you know, hunted by the monster, by his own creation, really kind of his obsession ruins a great number of things and a great number of lives. And he's judged pretty harshly as a character. In this film, and in the previous film, they kind of end with him headed towards uh, seeming a marital bliss. I mean, in the previous film, mm. he's mm. tossed off the, um, the windmill, but he survives, and in yes. this one, he ends up kind of getting away, absconding. <laughs> the only person who really blames him for anything is Pretorius, and we don't know if that's just to kind of manipulate him. Why do you think Whale gives him more of a pass? Is that just because of, mm. like, 30s, you know, uh, Hollywood needs? Or do you think that Whale kind of sympathizes with him a bit more than Shelley did?
2: Mm. Well, if we again, if we see these films as um, interpretations of Shelley's novel, maybe pulling out some things that are open for debate in the original novel, and then give a particular spin on it. One thing that isn't entirely clear in Shelley's text is how much is um, is Victor condemned for certain choices that he's made versus the inherent nature of the acts that he has uh, contributed. And of course, again, in the 1831 uh, edition of the novel, Shelley had Victor... Uh, New dialogue added to Victor where he reflects a bit more on his actions and suggests that maybe he has violated some strictures of of God, uh, which aren't present in the original eighteen eighteen edition. But even with those new editions, both uh, additions, both editions of the text end in the same way, which is Victor on his deathbed talking to Walton tells Walton, you know, don't, don't pursue ambition, you know, this, it will end in disaster, your scientific inquiries will go badly. And then he says, but why do I say this? I have been blasted in my hopes, but another may succeed, right. suggesting that it really was something in the way he treated the monster, rather than the, the task of creating the monster in the first place, it could have gone differently. And I think that's perhaps why in Wales films, Henry Frankenstein does continue to survive. And even as we see in Bride of Frankenstein, he debates his own culpability and wonders whether he may, in fact, still continue to succeed sure. despite the failures of the first film, despite yes. the failures of this film. We go on, his two sons and son of Frankenstein right. and ghost right. of Frankenstein go on still thinking they're going to succeed where yep. things failed and that they continue to survive. All the Frankensteins in some way continue to, their progeny continues to go forth and, yep. and prosper. Yep. Um, the endeavor lives, even, yes. even uh, despite all the failures.
1: Well, let's think about some of those possibilities. Then, you know, if things had gone differently, kind of what what might have happened? Um, obviously, part of the Shelley novel is, in fact, the creature asking for uh, Victor to make him a mate. Um, Victor starts to do that, eventually balks and refuses to do so. In this one, we actually get the mate made. Here's my question for what might have turned out differently. Like, is there any hope that that could have worked? <laughs> you know like we all want the, the, the monster to end up with some sort of mate, right, and at the end of this film, you know are we supposed to think that there was no chance that the bride was ever going to possibly you know accept him, or are we thinking that like maybe this might work out? I mean you know
2: Yeah, so yeah, issues of circumstance and choices, so in the novel, Victor becomes horrified as he 's making the a female monster, he becomes horrified by the idea that the two monsters will go off and reproduce yeah. and will eventually create a race of what he calls devils that will take over the world, and this horrifies him so much that he can't go on, he destroys the female monster. I always wondered, if you're able to create female monsters and male monsters and control the forces of life, surely you could make it not... Uh, possible for the female monster to reproduce but nevertheless this was not something that ever entered into Victor's mind but we would think theoretically that that should have been a possible mechanism in the novel. In the film um, again it's Not clear whether it's an issue of inherent nature that the bride reacts so negatively to this situation. Is it the hideousness of the male monster that causes this? Is it something internal to herself? Or is it the nature of the situation in which she has been essentially created and put into a forced marriage without she suddenly wakes up and here she is now expected to marry this man she's never met who comes wandering in. And so perhaps understandably she reacts a little badly to this. Fair enough. Um, Things could have been different. (laughs) All right. Um, That's
1: great. So let's move to just science and technology for a second. There's this great line in the Shelley novel and this, you know, kind of, again, connects to this idea of, you know, is it corrupt from the beginning? Uh, His his intentions, his endeavors. Her line is... um, Knowledge is permanent and irreversible. Once it is gained, it cannot be dispossessed. In the original film and in the novel, they spent a lot of time with Henry developing kind of a new technology on how to create life, right? Bride starts after this technology to animate the dead has already been built. Um, does you know, Shelley or Whale feel that there's inevitability to the corruption of scientific knowledge? Like, is this always going to end badly? If we learn things that are powerful and new, are they pessimists saying, like, this is always going to end up in the toilet?
2: I think, again, depending on how much weight we put on, in Shelley's novel, that final line, literally Victor's dying line, um, another may succeed where I have failed, it's to suggest that um, it's not inherent, it's nothing about the nature of the inquiry that uh, made things go uh, wonky, but rather it was Victor's moral failure to take responsibility for his creation. Um, it, it may be more complex than that in the whale films. Again, thinking about the the way that the uh, monster, the Karloff monster, is represented as being both built with a bad brain, so he's sort of bad to begin with, and sure. then is treated badly, and so therefore goes um, also even more uh, murderous than perhaps he would have been otherwise. But given that we don't know, we, we're not we can't resolve whether it was uh, the brain or the the raising, that I think that lets whale position All technologies are all innovations in that same register. We don't know in advance whether they are going, where they're going to go, but we can't also say that it's not inherently that way. There may be some technologies, technologies that are indeed designed for murder, like a murderer brain, perhaps, that are inevitably going to produce Devastating results, but again, it's an unknown thing until they are actually executed. So I think it it gives him some ambiguous play around these ethical questions of technological responsibility that are perhaps slightly more constrained in the Shelley novel. Well, even in
1: even in this film, Pretorius is the one who kind of says, "We've come too far, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we've gone too far with this process. We can't turn back now." I mean, he's obviously depicted as kind of the evil character, and so maybe that's you know a corrupt idea coming from a corrupt person, but. Um, yeah, he's a, a fascinating guy. Actually, let's let's talk about Pretorius for a yeah. minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's an original fil- character, often singled out in this film as a barely muted queer figure. Um, when he's introduced, I think Minnie calls him like a queer-looking old gentleman, yes. even um, as his first kind of introduction. He with w-
2: secret grave things to speak of yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to you tonight alone. Yeah. It's very important. Um, he reawakens Henry's obsession with science. The two men create life far away from Elizabeth. He keeps on dismissing Elizabeth. There's all these little you know, moments of kind of power dynamics, and he ends up always seeming to win. Um, he and Henry somehow also manage to give The Bride an iconic hairdo within minutes of birth. Um,
0: yep. <laughs> so how, how,
1: how might reading The Bride as a queer birth change the way that the film sits both within kind of queer film history and also in sci-fi film history?
2: Mm, mm-hmm. Well, this is one of the things, again, that I think it that The Bride of Frankenstein nicely pulls out of Shelley's original novel and helps us rethink the history of gothic horror more broadly and then in literature as well as film, looking at it with the hyper-awareness that we might have about the queer potentials of the storyline from Bride of Frankenstein, looking back on Shelley's novel, we see when the monster makes threats to Victor... Like, I will be with you on your wedding night. And this line haunts Victor throughout the rest of the novel. What does the monster mean by that? Um, We probably have a sense of what some of the meanings might be in that regard. So the queerness is already in Shelley's novel, and the whale films help us see that. I think they also then, in that sense, help us to see the way that monstrous figures in the Gothic um, always have the potential to represent uh, sexual and gender nonconformity. Sure. And uh, we can then look back at you know 19th century novels, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or Picture of Dorian Gray, et cetera, and, real, and Dracula, of course, and see the queer sexualities that went rampant throughout those texts, and then their later film adaptations. So sure. we're able to look at the 1930s and 1940s universal pictures, other um, Hollywood monster pictures that follow all the way up into the 1950s and see things like... Um, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, about a wife who doesn't quite know that her husband inside really has this secret monster identity that uh, he sure. you know, has a uh, hidden life that she doesn't know about and so forth. We can then read those films in a way that's now authorized by our attentiveness to the, yeah. the queer themes in Bride of Frankenstein. And then it makes way for explicit... Um, homages to that film, to *Brighter Frankenstein*, such as *Rocky Horror Picture Show*, right, which very clearly is inspired by and even directly replicates many of the uh, images and lines of uh, *Frankenstein* and *Brighter Frankenstein* in a way that makes even more explicit their queer content and um, queer filmmakers like Clive Barker, etc., who have looked back to *The Bride of Frankenstein* as a clear source of inspiration for the um, queer imagery in their Obviously, Whale himself
1: yeah. was a more or less out director at the time, um, much more than uh, would have been acceptable even 10, 15 years later, and so that was something that seemed to be kind of around and uh, part of the way in which he went back and reread Shelley, of course. Um, yeah, so keeping on this, this sort of theme, I mean, male pairings are a very key component of the film. Um, I think we can confidently say that the creature and the hermit are the best couple in the film. <laughs> um, that's a great moment, I can, even sitting here in the audience, people you know, kind of laughing and being horrified for a little while, and then there's suddenly this great moment of tenderness in the film that sort of takes everyone's breath away. Um, the two of them seem to understand and support each other in deeper ways than everyone else. You know, Going back to this idea, would, it, would this type of scene have gotten Whale well in any sort of trouble with anyone in Hollywood at the time? Would viewers have caught on to the implications of this pairing? Or is it mm. kind of like you mentioned, is this kind of only our modern reading back into the film knowing what we know now, knowing the, the queer history of, uh, of film texts that come out of this or are inspired by this, do we just go back and read a lot of that in, or is there any way to know if audiences at the time might have seen some of that too?
2: Well, there, I think we can look at some anecdotal information from contemporaries of Wales that... Um, talked about the sort of open knowledge of Whale as a gay director and thinking about the extent to which he was hiring gay actors in the films, sure. et etc. And so that, that was known. And um, who was maybe gay, who wasn't gay, um, the question of the personnel involved may have made certain viewers attentive to potential themes. Sure. I think also, again, going back to the use of puns or double meanings, um, iconography in the films, certain viewers who were attentive to already established or emerging innuendos relating to uh, queer subcultures may have caught the double meanings of words like the queer-looking, or phrases like the queer-looking gentleman, or who may have understood that when the monster refers to the uh, hermit as friend and learns the meaning of that is exactly the same way he describes the, the female monster, yep. the bride, friend, friend. Yep. All of these are the friends that he wants. Yep. Um, so, and, and again, well, the campy performance we get of Pretorius, like these, will signify to certain audiences in ways that uh, will have a kind of winking in crowd knowledge that yeah. may not uh, speak to mass audiences. At the yeah. same time,
1: yeah. I also, I mean, I love at the end. Even when he first meets the bride, he tries to put her hand on his arm in the same way that the hermit sort of touches him for the first time, right, and, yeah. and, and feels his uh, wounds and sort of wants to care for him, which I think very, very touching little it moment. Is. It is. is. All right, I'm going to jump back to science and technology. I, I like jumping around. Um, you write about media depictions uh, of some more contemporary technological objects, uh, like nanotechnologies, the singularity, things like that i 'm um, wondering if you can talk a little bit about what has changed between kind of shelley 's time in the 1800s Wales' time in the 1930s and today as far as like our fascination and our fears uh, surrounding new technologies. Mm. Um, how are these things kind of articulated over time? Why do we keep returning to the same things over and over again, or is there new discussions that are kind of happening now
3: mm.
2: Well, certainly what has changed between mary shelley 's time and ours is the Idea of the laboratory creation of life has become increasingly within the range of technological possibility. New innovations of the 20th and 21st centuries, the development of not uh, fields of early genetics and molecular biology, up through biotechnology, recombinant DNA, now synthetic biology, we see a um, a a shifting horizon that makes the possible. Eventuality of full creation of life in the laboratory ever more possible, questionable to what degree we are already there um, or not, what hasn 't changed is the um, cultural fascination with it or the concern of this being um, always already a likely outcome of current scientific research, regardless of how technologically plausible it is at the time so um, and the way that Frankenstein has as the narrative has helped to shape those. Concerns. So if in 1818, when Mary Shelley writes it, it is indeed a speculative idea attributing to the domain of scientific capacity something that had been part of mythological and theological thinking for um, eons, but now is situated squarely within the emergent um, frame of reference for the modern sciences, it still would be another uh, 70 years until explicit claims about the actual laboratory creation of life would emerge. And so around 1900, we start to get um, newspaper reports of recent scientific research, for example, the work of Jacques Leb or Alexis Carell, uh, who worked in tissue culture and was able to sustain a uh, famously in the, the media report Reported his sustaining of an embryonic chicken heart well past the um, period of a normal chicken's life or uh, Jacques Leb, who was able to achieve um, artificial parthenogenesis of sea urchin eggs using chemical concentrations and not using uh, normal reproductive processes. Both of these situations uh, were accompanied by claims scientists have created life in the laboratory and also explicit references just like Frankenstein. So Frankenstein was used as a Um, a way of understanding those achievements as the creation of life, even though it's arguable that they were not really, but that was a way that the cultural imaginary could deal with it in the period just before Whale is making these these films. And we have continued to see that pattern throughout the 20th and 21st century. Frankenstein continues to emerge with new developments in the biological sciences as an easy way to conceptualize the ethical, the social, dimensions of new and emerging uh, innovations, including the always paramount question of what, to what degree does uh, the inventor remain responsible for uh, their inventions after they are released into the world. And these are, these are not questions that change with uh, new technologies. They are sure. indeed perennial.
1: Yeah, Are they mostly, I mean, is, is the novel sort of used often by people who are kind of more alarmist or are they used by people who are trying to you know, kind of tamp down on things? Or is it actually used in a way that encourages, you know, more technological innovation, more?
2: Yeah, I think there are, um, there are certain scientific practitioners who will claim uh, inspiration from or thinking about the possibilities of the mechanical, um, mechanistic control of life, the possibility of the prolongation of life after death, et cetera, by looking to not only Frankenstein, but a longer history of science fiction stories that have repeated those themes in the wake of Frankenstein. So certainly we can point to um, actual practitioners who will have at least some um, set of relationships to the imaginative possibilities of those texts. Um, as you're suggesting, it's often used in an alarmist way of, uh, as a way of suggesting things that maybe um, are hazardous or ethically problematic, uh, morally problematic, that perhaps science is going in a direction that society needs to have more oversight of. So we certainly see in that direction. But more recently, I've also seen the uh, interesting attention to the novel, at least uh, Mary Shelley's novel, as a way of trying to train or enculturate modes of ethical thinking amongst um, science students. Mm -hmm. Um, A recent development, for example, faculty at uh, Arizona State University have co-edited a new edition of Frankenstein that's specifically geared for teaching in the science classroom. And it ha- it's filled with footnotes that are directed towards ethical considerations that uh, science students ought to think about as they're mo- emerging through their careers. So that's a kind of new use of the novel, specifically as a pedagogical tool for um, trying to make more socially responsible scientists by thinking about the issue of responsibility.
1: That's fascinating. That's really, really cool. Um, Speaking of, you know, kind of technology and its uses and ethics, um, to jump back to the film for a second, this is made in 1935. It's kind of in the very tail end of the interwar period. Uh, Whale himself was a World War I veteran who had seen kind of some of the newest technologies deployed to, uh, you know, massively destroy life. Are there any really echoes of this wartime experience in Whale's depiction of technology in this film? Uh, And how does Whale's vision of technology's relationship to society maybe differ from the way that Shelley kind of conceives it.
2: Mm. Well, again, I think he is debating these questions in the narrative frame and the representation of technology in the Frankenstein films, questioning whether a technology that is associated inherently with murder, like the murderer brain, may have alternative uses, thinking about the different technological spinoffs that may emerge from military development during wartime, which certainly he would have seen um, evidence of, but also the real and abiding um, concern that technologies developed specifically for warfare tend to get used for, for warfare, and um, I think that that really is the core question that he's asking uh, in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, is, is there a way to escape destiny when it's a technology that is inherently um, originating in a space of the pathological or of death and sure. um, death and destruction? Can it go otherwise, going to the earlier questions you had asked? Is there a way we could have foreseen or imagined a happy ending to any of these uh, scenarios? And the fact that the series does continue to go on and keeps trying and keeps trying suggests that, well, yeah, maybe the cyclical repetition of, of violence is something that... Uh, Technological innovation tends to allow um, as a propagation, but perhaps eventually it could, could go otherwise. But it, it, it's an unanswered question. I think it's, it's just one that is being explored and experimented with yeah. here.
1: I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about, you mentioned the legacy too, uh, the kind of filmic legacy that's been over oh, really, even the last 10, 15 years, films like uh, Ex Machina or Her, mm. films about kind of the boundaries kind of slipping between what is human and what is uh, inhuman you know, there's only one person actually in this film, I think, who actually refers to the monster and says it's the hunter who shows up in the in the doorway of the Hermit's place and says, Don't you know that he's not even human, he's mm-hmm. just made from reanimated tissue? Mm-hmm. This sort of question about what is he isn't isn't as quite alive in this film as some of the other places, but that obviously has come in a lot in, in more recent films in terms of like, you know, again, these relationships between humans and non-humans and the, the boundary lines between them. Um, how are those sort of questions getting pushed forward? And um, where do you see kind of the science fiction genre? You know, kind of moving in terms of these issues of human and non human today.
2: Yeah, in some ways, I think this is a question that science fiction has asked um, all along, at least within um, certain domains in print science fiction, novels, and short stories from Frankenstein through the early um, 20th century. We have many examples of science fiction asking exactly this question to what degree do um, scientists Uh, scientific creations, invented life, artificial people, artificial creatures have some kind of authentic life of their own. And this then continues... Adding, adding to that formula, uh, with every new decade and the increasing escalation of innovations that happen, um, new twists are added to that, but it still continues to ask that question characteristically as a genre. H.G. Wells' Island of Dr. Moreau at the end of the 19th century and its various film adaptations, Island of Lost Souls, et cetera, that ask about whether um, artificially transformed Animals that now acquire human characteristics to what degree are they now humanized and can we st- do they have rights etc um, that question starts to be asked about robots in the from the 40s through the 60s, robot stories. And so the latest phase that we see in some of these high-profile high science fiction films, they're really asking questions that have been asked many, many, many times in science fiction. But perhaps the reason that they gain more mass attention now is because our technology has reached a point of, of everyday familiarity where um, it's pretty obvious that these are important questions. It sure. had been projected so far out as a future speculation for, um, in the history of science fiction as something that was... Su- we can deal with that later. It's Yes, it's perhaps emergent in our technological configurations now, but it's not clear and present. Yeah. Now I think we're seeing so much evidence from so many different directions, the biological, the computational sciences, um, every which direction, that it seems more and more plausible to more and more people that we do need to actually take seriously the question whether artificial intelligences, artificial beings, have some kind of important and necessary equivalency to quote-unquote, natural ones and um, what our responsibility as the creators of these things are to attending to their relationship to us and the world, their potential rights as um, self-fulfilling entities and so forth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's so striking about this film, and, and I think it speaks to what you were just saying, is you know, there's a fascination with the technology itself right? as this amazing new thing and, and the kind of climax of the film is all these shots of you know, electrical gadgets kind of going and, and it looks so fantastical but today as we get closer and closer to this becoming a reality that fantastical element kind of recedes and some of the ethical questions become you know, really the forefront of, of where we're kind of going with this genre so um, yeah I think that, that makes great sense I think we're going to take some audience questions. Um, we're pretty much uh, at our time here. I just wanted, to, before we turn everything over to the audience, say that uh, you know this film, as we mentioned, serves as a really, really great uh, precursor to the next couple of films that we have in this Frankenstein series. Rocky Horror obviously runs with kind of the queer texts um, and the sexual aspects of the uh, of the film quite quite extensively. Fresh for Flesh for Frankenstein, the Warhol film, um, although Warhol himself is. Well, we'll talk about it later <laughs> Anyway, um, <Of> course. <laughs> that film also runs away with some of those themes Young Frankenstein picks up on a lot of the campiness of this film uh, in some wonderful and hilarious ways, they even use a lot of the uh, same sets, so the, the set from the very end of this film was actually discovered by Brooks inside of a studio and used there so come back, uh, please uh, keep coming to these films and we'll keep talking about some of these really interesting issues um, yeah, we're going to turn to the audience now um,
2: I wanted to ask another question about electricity
1: oh, do it Really? Okay. <laughs> All right.
2: Okay. Um, just because you had mentioned that the the kind of blowing out of the electrical charging of the body is much more exaggerated in the Whale films than in the Shelley, but just last, was it earlier this week? No, last week we watched the new Mary Shelley biopic, and the galvanic is also a major hinge in, in that telling of the Frankenstein story. Um, so I'm just wondering. In the 1930s in the whale films, what is it that would have been so attractive about the galvanic rather than, say, the chemical or any other, any number of other emerging scientific tools? Is it just that it was zappy and cool looking on camera, um, but just from, like, a history of science perspective? Yeah, I've wondered this, too. I think the idea that the monster is a kind of machine, that it's it's sort of like a, a... car or motor or something that can be built from spare parts so it has this electrical capacity to it certainly lots of research in the biological science was being done on bioelectrics and so forth but I think um, what's peculiar as an explanation that emerges in the 1931 Frankenstein is that the secret isn't electricity per se, but it's rather what electricity allows access to a a form of electromagnetic radiation that's beyond the ultraviolet is the explanation that we're given, which... Again, it's not said to be x-rays, even though certainly x-rays would have been known as the uh, wavelength beyond. And so much experimentation about the role of x-rays in the biological sciences, including the uh, induction of mutations or biological monstrosities using um, x-rays or medical treatments using x-rays. It was part of... a very widespread form of biomedical experimentation at the time using that uh, using electromagnetic radiation. So certainly I think that is part of the uh, part of the discourse. The explanation that then gets given in Son of Frankenstein is it turns out no, it wasn't X-rays. It was actually what Henry Frankenstein, his son realizes, really discovered was that it's secret access to cosmic rays. So there's so much research that's being done on cosmic rays at the time too, as they try to Tap into that and suggest that, yeah, there's an even deeper level of uh, physical explanation happening here. Um, but I'd say the connection, to contempt- the specific connections to contemporary research, are a little bit fuzzy at best. Yeah.
1: Because they, they keep changing it. It's also a pretty good indication that it just looks cool. You know what I mean? Like, they keep changing the reason for why it's there and the mm-hmm. justification mm-hmm. for it, but it does. It looks cool.
0: To kind of continue on the um, discussion of electricity used in Frankenstein, I actually kind of wrote about this in a similar paper about Frankenstein, so I brought up my quote from, that I got from the novel. But anyways, in the 1818 version, which you talked about earlier, how there's two different versions of Frankenstein, in the 1818 version, she specifically mentions, this is a novel, um... Electricity. She mentions the word and that it inspired young Frankenstein, not to reference the movie, but the young Frankenstein before he ever moved out of his parents' house, and that's what sparked his imagination with science. But then in the 18... What is it? 33? 1831 version, it is removed, the mention of electricity. And so I wonder if you... because earlier when you were talking about the different versions you talked about how the director took from the 1831 version but now it seems as well that he took from both versions and I don't know if you could expand upon that yeah absolutely
2: no you're you're absolutely right that that reference to electricity did change where it reappears is in the preface in the 1831 preface which Mary Shelley then tells the story about how this how the genesis of this text came into being she was also trying to re. Um, re-own her authorship of this text uh, because the first edition had been published anonymously originally, so she, the 1831 edition was her opportunity to really explain that she indeed was the author and where it had come from. And she explains in the context of that that it was in the discussion of, of, of Galvanism and the possibility of um, animating uh, uh, Vermicelli, I think she says, using electricity in that um, in that preface is where the suggestion comes in that there's there's clearly an electrical capacity um, that Frankenstein is engaging, but it's not spelled out um, to the previous question. It's not spelled out in detail in the novel,
3: absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask a different question. Um... One of, the dif- you know, one of the differences that strikes me in both of the films, I mean, Frankenstein and Bride, from the novel, also is um, collaboration of the male scientists, as well as the introduction, always, of a lab assistant. And Whereas in Shelley's text, of course, the fact that Victor does everything in isolation is, again, part of her critique – but so I'm wondering and you know, and I, I do think I mean I think there is a queer subtext also in Mary Shelley's novel, but and I do think that the Victor Henry uh, conflation is alluding to that, but I'm also wondering what you make of the you know the more intense collaborations between men, whether that's part of whale's um, queering of science or more um, critique of a masculinity that that you know, is also something that is is alarming, and I and I think about that in terms of partly what you said at the beginning about the sort of cobbled together uh, creature figure is a more um, groupified notion of mob rule. But but it strikes me, and you know, both of these changes relate to kinds of focuses on individualism and critiques of isolation that then get get pluralized in both directions in in the film and, and what you make of that change.
2: Um, yeah, so I think this is important for thinking, as you're suggesting, about the queer subtext of science in general in Bride because there are a few lines that suggest um, exactly this. So when Pretorius um, suggests to uh, Henry Frankenstein that they should go off and do this or that they must go off and do this, he uses the phrase, we will probe the secrets of life and death. And he suggests that um, science, like love, often has surprises, right? So you (laughs) never know what's going to happen. So science is a space of queer things, including making monsters and things that that happen outside of nature's normal order of events in this film. Now, it is indeed a communal, uh, at least it's an activity done by two plus an assistant. And whether that um, helps to overcome the problem of isolationism identified in Shelley's novel, I'm not sure, because it's still the ethical attitude remains the same. It's the production of life without attending to the context of life or the, uh, the care for a healthy and stable life. Um, environment for the created so one versus two hasn't made too much difference between the novel and the film um, but there is also then the suggestion of queer families as we were discussing earlier with the, with the hermit etc which may indicate that there is at least the potential for a support network that is unrealized perhaps because of Pretorius' own particular ambitions um, that isn't available in the original novel
4: Thank you, both of you, for the discussion. And I wanted to actually ask about those weird little small creatures that we thought, Because we can't miss out on them. I mean, they're funny, and they're part of the camp. But I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts are about Whale's engagement with generation or generativity of life. Because on the one hand, the 1931 film has often been interpreted as his engagement with the eugenics debate and the, you know, Darwinian's idea of uh, traits. And here, you know, you have this crossbreeding of these little things which are caricatural, so they're like Men- Mendel's, you know, pea shoots, pea gardens, mm-hmm. growing mm-hmm. fruits. Uh, so there is, a, and that goes nowhere. He can't scale that up to something gigantic. But when it's gigantic, in the film, the way the mise is he towers over everything natural, the trees, mm-hmm rocks, everything, and that's also dangerous. You don't want to breed such a thing. So I'm getting your argument about emergence and the delight of life just emerging, but there seems to be several warnings about theories of generation and how far we can. So I'm just curious about what you think about that. Mm -hmm.
2: I think in the... So Pretorius has discovered or represents a paradigm of biological science that is about generation from the genetic in the broad sense, right? He says, I grew it from seed, I cultured it. So he's, I think he is drawing, this is one moment of reference to contemporary science. I think he is indeed drawing a, a, on the um, very public discussion around tissue culture and the Capacities to make tissues live beyond the normal span of, of uh, that they should live otherwise, um, so Pretorius represents that mode of biological science, whereas Henry Frankenstein represents a kind of engineering you build you build biology with parts it 's sort of rough and gross and. Uh, big components, and so it's a big mach- big machine monster, but it's a one-off, it can't reproduce itself, it needs to be built like an assembly line at best. So Pretorius represents the possibility of life emerging from um, its original parts or its, um, its component essences, and only in combination then with the, the engineering are they able to create um, a- another monster that is literally a hybrid of these two methods that then is promised to now be the potential for self-reproducing technology. Like now, Now the two methods have been merged, now they can go together and we'll have a whole planet overrun with these kind of things. So whether we take it as a warning or an enticement, I think it's suggesting a way of seeing different ways of looking at organisms and looking at biology and the control of life from two different directions and seeing the potential of combining these things as leading to a, um, a control of life that leads to life out of control, life that controls itself. It's a great place to end.
1: Uh, thank you so much again for coming. Please join me in thanking Dr.